Let's pray. Father, I thank you that these words are a strange and wonderful comfort to people who are hated, who are despised in this world. And I thank you too that these words have no place among good, squeaky clean church folk who don't get hated because they don't take risks. So I just pray that you'd help us be numbered among those who are hated. Please number us among the risk takers because that's what love is. Jesus, you were hated. Please teach us why this bad news becomes really good news. In your name we pray. Amen. We are now four weeks into the Lenten season. It's the season in the life of the church. It's, uh, it's 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. 40 days, actually, it's more than 40 days if you go from Easter to uh, Lent, or rather, uh, Ash Wednesday to Easter, but if you drop the Sundays out, it's 40. That's how we get the number 40. 40 days in the life of the church expressly dedicated to deepening our understanding of the gospel. That, and that should fit our church just fine, because we want to be a gospel-centered church family. So Lent is a welcome time. We get ready for the Easter celebration. And one of the ways we've been seeking to do that during these days is to dig deep into the Gospel of John, particularly chapters 13 to 17, where we have what is oftentimes called the upper room discourse. It's the, just the body of teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples the night that he was betrayed, the night before he went to the cross. And it's unique to John's Gospel. So the upper room discourse, uh, otherwise known as John 13 to 17, is among other things a handbook on discipleship. It is a manual, uh, even a clinic, on what we need to know if we want to make disciples. So thus far we've learned that if you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, first discern the convictions that anchored the Savior's service. And Receive the cleansing for the stain of your sin that only Christ can provide. Understand that as students we are not above our teacher. And beware of the very real possibility of betrayal. That was week one of Lent. Uh, Week two, we considered the very simple but demanding truth that if you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, then you must love disciples of Jesus Christ. Love disciples of Jesus, and we love them awake to what prohibits Jesus' physical proximity, toughened by the truth of his exclusivity, believing in the reality of his divinity, and indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. Last week, we stirred into this Lenten series three truths about assurance of salvation that can provide rock under our feet as we pursue our mission. Isn't that right? Seth taught us last Sunday that continual growth in Christ's likeness is evidence that you belong to Jesus. 
And if you belong to Jesus, you will progress in the faith, possess maximum joy, and practice love toward other believers. Now, trusting that you have your Bibles open to John chapter 15, we'll pick up the exposition in verse 18 this morning. John 15, 18. As Jenny said, it's 902 on the Red Bibles, in the Red Bibles, 902. We're going to continue the same theme of of disciple-making, making disciples of Jesus. This week, Jesus has two kinds of news for us. How many times have you been faced with this dilemma? Somebody will say to you, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which news would you like to hear first? And it's gulp. Uh, Why are you asking? You know. Uh, what a nerve-wracking way to approach somebody, right? Sheesh, so good news and bad news. Great, I'll take the good news, and you can keep your bad news if it's all the same to you. Right? It's interesting to ask the question, though, when you're faced with such a decision, which one do you typically want to hear first? Uh, tells a lot of, about you, actually, your makeup, which one that you prefer first, or if you only prefer one to the other, the good news or the bad news. And Assuming that you're going to hear both, which one do you want to start with? So is there a Christian answer to that question? Like, which one should Christians want first? Uh, I'm not really sure that the answer is actually neither here nor there, um, because as followers of Jesus, we ought to be desperate for and passionate about any news he might have for us, whether it strikes us as good or bad, Right? Whether news is encouraging and reassuring or whether it is unfavorable and depressing, we are truth people. We are news people. And when Jesus is talking, we know we're going to get the truth. Amen? So in that spirit, on this fourth Sunday of Lent, I've got some good news for us. And i got some bad news for us. Which one are we going to start with? Well, we're going to begin with the bad news, because that's the way that Jesus begins it in this particular case. So here's the first of three points today. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that the world will hate you. But the good news is that Jesus has overcome the world. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that the world will hate you. But the good news is that Jesus has overcome the world. Jenny read for us the text that this point deals with. So let's just start with the bad news. I mean, what Jesus is saying here could not be classified in any sane person's mind as glad tidings. When you stop to think about it, it is a wonder that the membership of the Church of Jesus Christ has advanced the way that it has over 2,000 years, given that this is the front end of the program here. The world will hate you. It is possible that the reason for the mustard seed-like advance for the church would be affected by truths like this. Verse 18 The world hates you. Verse 
Verse 19, if, if, you, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. They will, chapter 16, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Just a little note here. Relational spheres of public hanging out, whether religious or otherwise. Places of public acceptance. You'll be hated in those places. They'll put you out of those places. You won't be tolerated there. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. It is imaginable, it is thinkable, it is likely that a contributing factor to the difficulty of our mission is that the world hates us because it hates Jesus. Now, verse 19, properly understood, can be as encouraging as it is discouraging. Some of you are ahead of the power curve on this and probably know where we're going. Think about this. We are called to love one another, and so our church should be pulsing with love and loaded with love to each other, spilling out over onto the world, which, by the way, is how God loves the world. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a love factory, and they move out onto the world that way. Our church should spill love into the community. That's what Seth taught us last week, so let's just connect the dots. Uh, let's read John fifteen seventeen right into fifteen eighteen, and you'll see a paradox about love and hate that is really interesting. What's Jesus driving at here? John 15, uh, starting in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. When you put 168 hours in between sermons, you, mi- you miss that. Okay, Seth's last v- verse for us snugs right up to the first verse this morning. Far too many churches in America today are chasing an impossible goal, acting as if their mission is to get the world to love them. And they are surprised, and they are miffed when the world doesn't love them. How silly. Exhibit A of this in our day has got to be the issue of homosexuality so-called gay marriage. Apart from the abortion issue, it's got to be the most culturally explosive question of the time. It has to be. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has the church in our day in a number of unenviable positions, ranging from sinful, pharisaical anger toward the culture, on the one hand, to pathetic capitulation to the whims of the culture on the other. They are opposite errors. One is an abandonment of love. The other is wimping out on truth. And if there were time to say more on this, today I would and one day will. We've addressed the topic many times from this pulpit. Not many, but every time the scripture seems to address it, or our culture demands it. 
One resource that's provided for you is a pastor's prayer blog post that I read for the, uh, wrote for the website back in January. It's included in today's bulletin. Um, if you want to know more about what the church's position ought to be with regard to homosexuality or gay marriage, I would offer that as, as a position. Um, I'd invite you later to read it, <laughs> not now. And not just to read it, but if you agree with it, pray with me through it. It's a prayer. Should we be surprised when the world does not love us? No. Ought we not rather to take the words of our Lord at face value when he says the world hates you? And know that it hated him before it hated us? What's neat about this is if we believe this, it will really just free us to concentrate on our mission. If we believe the bad news, it will free us to concentrate on our mission. Not to be loved by the world, but to love the world. All of the world. All of the world. Whether they agree with us or not. So if you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that the world will hate you. But the good news is that Jesus has overcome the world. Uh, To see this... I'd like to direct our attention to three verses. Each of them are in chapter 16. Uh, first verse is John 16, 1. The second verse is, is they're all in your outline there, uh, is the second half of John 16, 4, uh, first half of John 16, 4, and the last is the third verse, the last half of John 16, 33. Listen to the first verse, John 16, 1. Uh, Jesus has just given us a nice big helping of bad, bad news. The world hates him, and if we love Jesus and each other, the world will hate us. Super. Why have you said these things, Jesus? Verse 1 of chapter 16. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, the counterintuitive nature of that logic, when it dawns on you, will be very encouraging to you. Listen to a, a similar statement from our Lord in the first half of John 16, 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you, that it would be this way. You'll know that I was right. So you're about your father's business. Uh, you're invested in loving your brothers and sisters here at Mount Evangelical Free Church, and you are bending over backward to, to pray for and specifically to move into the lives of and care for those around us and just speak a good word for your king whenever you get the opportunity. And it starts to cost you. The mission costs you. It costs you time. It costs you financial investment. It costs you opening your family to people. It costs you emotional involvement. And it frequently costs you social acceptability among unbelievers, and among worldly churchgoers. Is this a problem? It is not a problem. It's a promise. It's also a protection. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And add 1633 to this. In the world... 
you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Uh, Ray Ortland Sr., who is now with the Lord, uh, tells the story of Charles Spurgeon as he writes, A lady came up one day to Charles Spurgeon and said, Oh, Dr. Spurgeon, what's happening? It seems as if the world is coming to an end. And Spurgeon answered, Never mind, my dear. We can get along without it. Indeed, we can. Now, don't mistake that statement for some sort of apathy toward world mission and evangelism. That was Charles Spurgeon saying that. I mean, when, we, when the role is called up yonder, uh, more people in England will say, Charles Spurgeon was the agent that got me here. So he's not apathetic toward the world. He's just not in love with it. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that the world will hate you, but the good news is that Jesus has overcome the world. Second point today. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that Jesus won't be back until the mission's complete. The good news is that the helper has come. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that Jesus won't be back until the mission's complete. The good news is that the helper has come. Now, I think, uh, in some ways, the meat and potatoes of this point was two weeks ago. So we won't labor this too much this morning. But what I'd like to do is to read through the words of Christ on this topic, because he's going to expand on this discussion that he began for us a couple of weeks ago about his bodily absence and then the presence of the the Holy Spirit during our mission. So let's start with the bad news. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is he will not be back until the mission is complete. The positive way to say it is, once the gospel has been preached to every people group, he's coming back. Uh, Follow along with me in the second half of verse 4 from chapter 16. I did not say these Things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now drop down to verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. And now verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So Jesus is a a supervisor. He is a manager that believes in leveling with those in his charge. He's not going to bury his lead here. He wants them to be crystal clear. His His trust in these guys is nothing short of stunning, isn't it? Is he serious? He's going to entrust the mission to bring the message of the gospel to all nations to these knuckleheads and leave them alone Is that wisdom? 
It reminds me of a story I've told before. The best stories you've got to tell at least twice, right? Or 20 times. But it's the story of the wedding day of pastor and author C.J. Mahaney. Uh, Though bald as a billiard ball today, uh, C.J. Mahaney at a time in his life would have had really long hair. He was converted in the Jesus movement back in the early 70s, and the man had long hair. He was a very young, energetic, very green, emerging Christian leader on the East Coast. And C.J. had the providential opportunity to marry into a wonderful Mennonite family. And a young woman named Carolyn caught his gaze. So, to Carolyn's father's dismay, Carolyn chose CJ. And as the groom stood in the fellowship hall with his soon to be father in law, CJ leaned into his soon to be father in law and said to him, I want to tell you that I love your daughter. And I am humbled that you would trust me with her. To which Carolyn's father leaned in and replied, I don't trust you. I trust the Lord. Is this not what Jesus is doing here with his disciples? Do you think that for one single solitary nanosecond that Jesus actually trusts his disciples further than he can throw them? Now, on one level, of course, he does trust them. And he trusts you. He trusts our church. He's entrusting the mission to us. There's some Bible here. 1 Thessalonians 2 says we have been entrusted with the gospel. He trusts us. At the same time, it must be noted that he's already warned them in Mark 14, 27, you will all fall away. Does he trust them? Not more than he trusts the keeping power of his Father and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, if you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that Jesus won't be back until the mission is complete. But the good news is that the Helper has come. The helper has come. And if you know Jesus, he's inside you right now. If you're a Christian, be encouraged. If you're not a Christian and you're with us and you want some help with your life, turn to Jesus. He'll give you a helper for all of your suffering and all of your sin. Turn to Jesus. Um, Listen to the words of Jesus about this person John 15, 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, I, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now uh, drop down to verses 7 to 15 in chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... 
He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare the things to you that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father is, has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We at Mount Evangelical Free Church believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that the gospel especially is applied by the Holy Spirit. We're a gospel-centered church family, so we ought to be really concerned with the one who applies what is at the center of our movement. We believe that the Holy Spirit and all he does glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that he convicts the world of its guilt. We believe that he regenerates sinners, and in him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. The Holy Spirit also indwells and illuminates and guides and equips and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. If that sounds familiar to you or fantastic to you, then you're thinking like we're thinking in this church because every word that I just read to you comes from Article 6 in the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith about the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. Uh, in the original, it's the word parakaleo. Uh, sometimes it's, and it's translated, it's transliterated in some English translations, paraclete. The paraclete will come to you. It's, a, it's an English way of talking about this word that Jesus uses, or John uses in particular. Sometimes this is translated the comforter. So sometimes he's the helper, the comforter. These are English ways of grasping at what this Greek term was all about. Uh, literally, the word Jesus uses here in John 16, 7 means the come alongsider. That's, and I've never seen an English translation that is bold enough to say it that way. Para, alongside. Kaleo, to, to be called, to, to come to. He's the come alongsider. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He's a divine person. And he's given to come alongside us in our mission, in all of our mission, in all of our suffering, and in all of our sinning. He's given to come alongside us. You say, all of our suffering? All of our sinning? Yes. Yes. Your anxiety, your fear, your depression, your abuse, your despondency, your relational conflict, your marriage, your parenting, your grandparenting, your singleness, your work life, your home life, your school life. The gospel is the power of God for the comprehensive rescue for everyone who believes. Whatever we might face, whatever our flesh or the world or the devil might throw at us, we have a fully able Bible and we have a fully equipped comforter. Amen? Christians believe this. They don't practice this very well. By God's grace, we will. If we want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that Jesus won't be back until the mission's complete, but the good news is that the helper has come. One final point today. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, 
the bad news is that some of Jesus' instructions are hard to understand. The good news is that he's able to make them plain to those who will ask him. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that some of his instructions are are hard to understand, but the good news is that he's able to make them plain to those who will ask him. Uh, Follow along one last time as I read our Lord's instruction. We're going to start in chapter 16, verse 17. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while. And you will not see me. And again in a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew already that they wanted to ask him. So he said, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while you will not see me. And again in a little while you will see me. And then jump to 21 and we'll read to the end of the text. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Everything will be taken from you. Everything will be stripped from you one day, except your joy in Jesus. It's the only thing you're going to take with you to heaven. Back to Jesus. Verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer talk to you in figures, speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and do not say that, and I do not say to you that the Father will ask on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and you don't need anyone to question you. That's why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Okay. What do we say here? Well, do you read the Bible? If you read the Bible, do you pray over the Bible? Do you read the words of Jesus and pray over the words of Jesus? In prayer, we talk to him. In scripture, Jesus talks to us. God himself talks to us. This book is God speaking. Uh, In his beautiful book, The Hidden Life of Prayer, The Lifeblood of the Christian, uh, David McIntyre writes this. 
As 19th century Scottish pastor Andrew Bonar reviewed his ministry from time to time, amid many regrets, his deepest sorrow was on account of the unexhausted possibilities of prayer. The unexhausted possibilities of prayer. In his journal, Bonar wrote, My heart smites me for being so unlike Epaphras. You could look up Epaphras. He's Colossians 4, 12 to 13. Who labored fervently in prayers. Bonar says, One terrible failure confronted me everywhere at the end of my pastoral ministry. Ye have asked nothing in my name. I had some almost overwhelming sense of my sins of omission in days past. Only if I had prayed more. Oh, if I had prayed a hundredfold more. I'm no prophet, but you will not lie in your deathbed and say, I prayed too much. But the reverse might be true. You haven't gone to too many prayer meetings. The attendance tells a different story. And I want to tell you, too, you are free not to go to prayer meetings, too. But I would pray with people. You don't have to go to a specific prayer meeting, but you do have to pray if you know Jesus. Jesus says in verse 26, ask in my name. Ask him. Jesus gave his flesh and bone for you. And if he gave that for you, he'll... He'll give a lot of other things that you need. He wants to help you. And as we learned in last week in John 15, 7, and if you know this fighter verse, you can sing it with me. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. That verse is a blank check. And on the other side of that account is all that Jesus has bought for you. Everything you need for life and godliness. And if you run out of checks, like we did at Wells Fargo, you can order up some more. They give you a card. I can't find my wallet. You use a check card. Just swipe it. Pray constantly. Pray without ceasing. You will not exhaust his account. Not likely. If Andrew Bonar, one of the greatest preachers that has ever walked a pace in the country of Scotland, did not exhaust the possibilities of prayer, I would submit that it is possible that we will not either. If you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the bad news is that the world will hate you. The good news is that Jesus has overcome the world. The bad news is that Jesus won't be back until the mission is complete, but the good news is that the helper has come. The bad news is that some of Jesus' instructions are hard to understand and some of life is hard to live. But the good news is that he is able to make them plain to you and to help you if you ask him. So you need to know that I believe in biblical preaching. I mean, I do. I wouldn't spend a lot of time working on it if if I didn't. I believe in the public proclamation of the word. But do you know what I believe even more than biblical preaching in? I believe in biblical living. This is one hour. In 167 hours, we'll be back. 
And what we do with the next 167 will be very telling in view of what we've just heard in this first hour. Even more than the public proclamation of Christ, I believe in the personal application of Christ. I believe in the preaching of the Bible, but even more I believe in the practicing of the Bible. So let's take what we've learned here this morning. Let's take our learning, and by God's grace, let's translate it into loving and to living. We treasure and we should test these truths in our home and on the job and in the classroom and in your community group and in your neighborhood. Get into a community group if you're not in one. Get into one. Talk to me. Talk to Seth. We'll help you find a group. Roll up your sleeves and serve in this church if you're not serving already. Be baptized if you haven't been baptized. If you have a list of five, I hope you have a list of five, get on your knees Move your feet, open your mouth, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It is not the hearer who forgets, but the doer who acts, who will be blessed in his doing. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we believe in expositional preaching. I just pray we believe in expositional living. Expositional parenting, expositional neighboring, expositional listening to each other in Fellowship Hall, expositional moving toward empty, needy, hungry, lost, sinning and suffering people. Please, Lord, with this word, make believers into unbelievers. And would you make believers stronger and more fortified, ready to move out this week together, arm in arm, to make a difference in the name of Jesus. For the helper has come. Amen.